0: and he will now be asked to make his oath. There are two stages of the oath, the one set by Parliament, and then secondly, he will be required to read out the Accession Declaration Oath and then sign both documents. But just before that happens, the Bible will be presented to him by the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland.
1: Sir, to keep you ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, receive this book, the most valuable thing that this world has to offer. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively Oracles of God. A Presbyterian and an Anglican walk into an abbey. <laughs> That's the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, a Presbyterian, if you wanted to know our heritage of this community. Presenting to the future king and now the present king of England a Bible. And once again, if you're a An alien that's just sort of watching that for the first time, or if you're here today, you're wondering, what's the deal with those words? What are we supposed to make of those words? I mean, there's plenty of reasons why you might have respect for it. They're old words, they're preserved words, they're gilded words, they're respectful words. Obviously, they're showing up in a moment like that that is irreducibly gospel-centered. But why are they different? You can't understand what happened yesterday in that service. and If you have your complaints about the, um, the monarchy and Charles and, and whatever, th- those, place, those, those complaints have their place in their time. That's why no sitting president has ever gone to a coronation, because like that's their thing. We left that. But you can't understand what just happened unless you understand what's in the pages of the Bible. There's too much imagery. There's too much symbolism. Why does it matter? Why have we stood and sat and listened and prayed and sung, all of that, these words. What's up with that? We should ask that question. If you're just joining us, we are taking as many weeks as we need to to consider who is and what does the work of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit has a part in the Word. And so we thought it would be best, before we go too much further down that road, to kind of back up here and say, what does the Word say about the Spirit who happens to be involved in the words about him. Hmm. Confused? Good, that's why we're here. We want to understand what does the Scripture say about the Spirit, that we might understand that Spirit, but mostly to say, how is the script Spirit involved in the Scripture? They go together. We should kind of parse that out a little bit. So we are, and we will. And we're going to consider it under three heads. What is the Spirit's participation in the Word? What is the spirit's purposes for the word, and finally, what is the spirit's promptings to the word—the participation in it, the purposes for it, the promptings to it? We're going to listen to two voices in the New Testament, but those people that were writing only knew what we know as the Hebrew Bible. So we're going to consider what that has to say about they have to say about that, and how we think about the whole. So, if you will, let's listen to two voices. If you might stand. Weird, right? Here we go. We'll start with Paul's words to the church, with the, to, to his young brother Timothy, with a very personal word at first. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the purpose of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. As for you, continue in what you have learned and to firmly believe knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Paul's buddy Peter says this. The Bible is like every other book you have ever read. It has characters, it has events, it has plots, it has stories, it has poetry, it has parable, it is retelling of historical events, it is interpretation, it is theology. It is like every other book. It it mentions, it references you know, places and times, and it's just like every other book you have ever read. And therefore, every book you've ever read has an author. That author had a purpose, and it had a particular recipient in mind as they wrote. So it's just like every other book you read. But in light of what you've just heard from Peter and Paul, it is also like no other book you have ever read also. And that is because the Spirit of God participates in that word in a way that we cannot say the Spirit participates in other words or in the way we think of other words. And that has an impact on how you think about them, how you receive them, how you approach them. Peter, whom you heard secondly, was writing to a bunch of churches, a bunch of fledgling churches. And Paul is writing to one particular person, an individual. uh, He was a mentor to Timothy. He helped prepare Timothy for pastoral ministry. He mentored him in that way. And both Peter and Paul are making the same claim. That the sacred writings, notwithstanding how ancient they are, how preserved they might have been, how hallowed they are, they also have another quality. And that quality is that they have their origin and intention in the Holy Spirit. Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. If you've been with us so far, that's a very represents a lot of what we've already heard. The Spirit in the Old Testament is from the Hebrew word ruach, which is alternately spoken of as breath or as wind or as life or as spirit. All Scripture, he says, is God-breathed. And the Spirit, as you've already heard, was involved in creation. Last week we heard how the Spirit is involved in the conviction of sinners. This week we're hearing how the Spirit is involved in the inspiration Literally, the inspiring, the breathing in of what the word is. Peter hops along that same wagon and says, what you find in the text, they are words, but they are not merely words of a human intuition or a human intention. They are words that are, in his words, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And doggone it, Peter, what do you mean by carried along? He doesn't say You ever seen these dudes on YouTube called the slow-mo guys, right? They they buy these $80,000 cameras, and they fire a bullet through a card because apparently they think we are interested in what that looks like at 80,000 frames per second. They want to break it down for us. We all wish, Peter, tell us what it looks like for the Spirit to breathe, to inspire God's words. What is that? I don't know. I will tell you this, though. It's not like God sort of puts people in a trance. And we are writing, and we are dictating, and we are doing, it's not it. That's not what we mean by God-breathed. It's not what we mean that men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? I borrowed a lot of insight from a theologian I've referenced to you of late named Brad East. He's a professor out in Texas. And as one scholar put it, when it comes to the Bible, they're more interested in product than process but I haven't heard a better explanation of what God breathed or carried along by the Holy Spirit than what Brad East says there in his book, Doctrine of Scripture. He says this, Each put human thought, planning, and intentionality into their texts. The words that appeared on the page were a product of their wills and bore the unique stamp of their personalities, their histories, their cultural contexts, their community of purposes. With the whole process of writing the Spirit of God moved the wills of the human authors such that their thoughts, their plans, their intentions, in the act of writing were in accordance with the divine will. Who wrote Scripture? God or people? You don't have to choose. And to say both is not impossible. These words, therefore, are to be understood in a different way. Now, Let's sit with that for just a second. Because as soon as I say that, no matter what your background is, there's probably at least two elephants in the room here. Will they fit? We'll see. The one is this. I know that Peter and Paul, and elsewhere, even in our call to worship from Psalm 119... Right, It is extolling the goodness of God's statutes. And in the text you heard Melody read from Ephesians chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I know what we're doing here. You may know what we're doing here. How are we establishing the authority and the trustworthiness of the Scripture? By what the Scripture says about itself. Now, if I come to you and say, I'm a kitten, and you say, really? Why, why, Why do you say that? And, and you just say, because I said so. You would say, oh. <laughs> you are a kitten because you said so. Yes. Okay. That's what the logicians, if any of you are a logician in here, like to work in logic, that's what we call a circular argument. I know that I'm appealing to two people that are talking about the authority of Scripture from what the Scripture says about itself. I get it. Cards on table. I know, you don't have to come up to me afterwards going, that's a circular argument. Look, I believe in reason. I think you do too. In fact, I'm using my reason in real time. As we speak, you see it. I believe, I am using my rational thought to believe that this platform will hold me up. I am using reason to not freak out about standing here. I recommend reason to you. It's a great concept, great category. At some point though, you're going to have to ask yourself the question, how do I prove that reason is, in fact, authoritative? I can only do that by using reason to prove reason. At some point, every authority comes down to a circular argument. Now, does that obliterate that argument? Of course not. Do I am I saying, don't use reason anymore? Of course not. I really recommend it, especially on the drive home. At some point, every authority has to ground itself, and it becomes an exercise in faith. It's not identical. I'm not trying to hand wave it away and go, see, naturally, so believe Scripture because of the same way with reason. I'm just saying, if that's an elephant in the room for you, that's fine. But if you think it is impossible for God to be involved in the inspiration of Scripture, you don't have an authorship problem. You have a God problem. And And that I mean this. If God is... Capable of being responsible for quasars and quarks, for birds and hatchlings and trees and hydrangeas and kids. If like God is responsible for all of that, then are you sure He would not be capable of inspiring texts? That's one elephant in the room. I know it's not the only elephant in the room, but it is an elephant that we have to address. It can happen like way. Look, the even bigger elephant, though, in the room, maybe. Is that I know full well that when you mention scripture in mixed company, you might get some angry responses. Um, you've heard of Comic Con, you've heard of Sci-Fi Con. Um, did you know that there was a Satan Con uh, last week? And to kick off the festivities, the uh, I don't know the moderator started ripping up pages of the Bible and throwing it on the ground. A little bit of anger there. You know what? I'm not excusing this. Some people's anger towards Scripture, I get it. I understand. If you look at the history of the way in which Scripture has been used from time to time, I'm full of the love of Jesus, right? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm full of love of Jesus. Or, or uh, you know, that moment there with Jennifer Aniston. It's not that Jesus doesn't ever talk about judgment. It's never, just never with the kind of flippancy that's being parodied there. The way in which scripture has been used to justify exploitation is real, and we should acknowledge it. The way in which scripture is sometimes used as a prop to do an act of pretense, that's real too. And we should acknowledge that. So I understand. But if I might offer two humble responses to that reasonable question. We said this at Easter, and I'll just say it again. When it comes to people complaining about the use of the Bible, you should always ask yourself, are they at the same time they're complaining about the use of the Bible that they're actually using biblical principles to make the critique? Just next time you hear somebody call it out in whatever form or fashion, what is the basis by which they are making the complaint? I would argue most of the time, I'm sure there are exceptions, they're actually invoking something from Scripture to complain about the use of Scripture. I'll just give you one example. People come out, all number of people, and say, you're not treating me with dignity. You're not treating me with respect because of a value that I have irrevocably in me just because I am. And the question is, where'd you get that idea? Who told you you had dignity? Where'd that come from? Because you have a bigger brain? I am made in the image of God, and that's what the text tells me. And that's why I have to treat everybody with respect, because they bear a dignity that comes to them simply because they exist, and because they are of Him. And therefore, my second response to that reasonable elf in the room is this. Scripture is our best words about Jesus, What we know most of him comes from this text. And whenever we see Jesus referring to Scripture, and it is often, he is defending himself with it, he is clarifying the nature of it, he is specifying how it applies, he is there to promise us he's not come to abolish it, to fulfill it. You heard Andrew preach several weeks ago about when he's on the road to Emmaus, he he walks them through the entirety of the Hebrew Bible and says, it all points to me. Jesus gives it authority in the way he speaks of it, but when he does so, he never brandishes it with malice. And he always speaks with love. If the Spirit has in fact seeded the truth of God in the text, there is one point of it that if you miss this, you better go back and start over, and it's this You're not God. And therefore, the only appropriate response to live is one who is humble. And therefore, however one reads it, how one receives it, how one shares it, has always to be done with humility. Can you speak things in a humble way and still offend? Absolutely. But you can also speak ways that are anything but humble, and no wonder they're offended. The Spirit is a participant in the Scripture It doesn't mean you don't have questions about it. It doesn't mean you don't have to wrestle with it. I got my reasons. I got my texts that make me go, what? I understand. To say that he's a participant doesn't mean you don't ask questions. You don't struggle. You don't wrestle. It just means that you think of it differently than you think of other books. The Spirit is a participant in the text. But he's not just there to sort of show off and go, look what I can do in humanity and in the world. There are purposes that the Spirit has the text and I'll give you three brief ones. One of which should be pretty obvious from what you already heard. The most obvious is that the Spirit has a purpose for our maturing by what the text does. It's there to grow us up. It's not to fill our head with facts. It's not to prepare long-winded sermons. It's to grow us up. It's to make us wise. It's to help us believe and you heard that in 2 Timothy. He rattles off this litany, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. The word there for training is from the Greek word paideia, from where you and I get the word pedagogy, which in our use of it is just sort of methods for distilling and imbuing facts. In the original sense of the word, it was the idea of preparing people in their fullness, in their wholeness. More than facts, their whole person, Virtue. That's what Paul has in mind here. And that training, more often than not, kind of follows a path, almost a storyline. And you hear that path in those first three words, teaching, reproof, correction. Let me put it in a very familiar scale. I have, in our household, at least two recent student drivers. And there's been plenty of instruction to go along in that process. Red lights, green lights, brake lights, turn signals, signs, you know, air up the tires, things like that. That's instruction. Now, when they start to avoid the way, when they start to get into a bad place, we have to reprove them. And reproof usually comes in the form of, right, like that, or brake lights, brake lights, brake lights, like that, right? You, you, that's called reproof, right? Because if I don't warn you, you are in the ditch. This is da- danger, danger, Will Robinson, move, right? That's called reproof. And then we, when we, when they're back in the line and we're we're at the red light and we can talk frequently, then we then we use correction. Like, if you can tell whether the driver in front of you is wearing gel or moose, you're too close. <laughs> right? Yeah, you. Bit. I not I not get it. Right? They're all doing very well. And after a while, hopefully the external comment becomes internalized. Usually they're like, oh, oh, okay, okay, not really. Okay, a little. Um, the external word begins to be internalize and they're on their way and then they're doing it that's it reproof tra- training reproof correction okay great that's how it works let's talk about it in real life some of you in this room deal with anger i get it and you know what paul in ephesians 4 remember that from so long ago he says he quotes the proverbs be angry but do not sin in other words anger in and of itself you know look Anger is, can be fierce emotion to protect what you cherish out of love. That's anger. Like, I, I want to protect my kids from harm. I also want to protect my kids from lies. And that doesn't mean I can insulate them forever. They're going to be adults someday. I can't do that. But as long as I'm the parent, I get to sequence what they hear. I protect them from harm. I protect them from lies. And I will be angry about it if I feel like my, my position is being usurped. That's unrighteous anger. But there's all sorts of angers that Jesus knows very full well that is not full of love. In fact, it's usually full of either self-importance or blindness. It is an anger unattended. It is an anger that we we embody and we start to feel juicy, righteous, which is really a self-righteous indignation, and we go after people. And the teaching is, look, there's an anger that's full of love, and then there's an anger that ain't. And sometimes you need to be warned of its danger. It will burn your house down. It will silence those who love you and whom you love. It will do something to your own soul. That's the reproof. And so you hear James explain by way of correction in James chapter 2 when he says this. Know this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's just one example of the maturing work of the word through the spirit in real life. Now, what I've said so far may sound like, okay, so the scripture is mostly like a TED talk. Good ideas worth sharing. I will read it. I will explain it and then I will understand it and then I will live it. And let me just say right now, that's what I'm trying to repent of here in the series on the Holy Spirit. Because if you think of it that way, that maturing is all about, I'm just applying life lessons in the Boy Scouts, you know, don't, you know, whatever. That flattens the nature of following Jesus down to a bunch of beliefs and a bunch of actions. And look, following Jesus is, as we've said, beliefs and actions, yes, but it's more. It better be. Because I fail at the anger part sometimes. And it's not because I don't understand it. Something has to move. And that's why there's two other ways in which the Spirit has a purpose for the Scripture. Not just maturing. Before you ever mature, you know what the Spirit does in the Word? It converts. It brings to your intention and to your understanding and to your belief the idea that Jesus is Lord and that he has died for sinners. And that if you are in him, you have the favor of God and the future inheritance. That's the gospel. When the Ethiopian eunuch, who's in the cabinet of Candace at the time in Acts chapter 8, is kind of sitting by the side of the road and, and Philip is led by the spirit to find him. And the Philip says, hey, what's going on? And the Ethiopian eunuch goes, yeah, I'm reading this text and I, I kind of don't understand it. He's reading Isaiah 53, and the eunuch says, is this talking about some, himself or somebody else? And that's when Philip says, dude, let me tell you. Not in exactly those words, that's a paraphrase. <laughs> and he explains to him, and in that moment, the eunuch says, oh, well, why shouldn't I be baptized right now? The word, through explanation and the intention and the operation of the Spirit, convinces this person that this is the one who has his best interests at heart and thereafter wants to identify with him by faith. It converts. It's what Paul does with the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 20. He goes with them. He talks with them. He tries to persuade them, but he's not just giving a lecture. He's not just letting them go, oh, that's really fascinating. They, he's out to see that they, by the power of the Spirit, go, oh, we're in. If you were with us, Two weeks ago, Paul Kingsnorth, the Brit, living in Northern Ireland, did this to the gospel for a very long time, and then at some point as he read, let his arm down. Before the Spirit ever matures us, it better has to convert us. Because the Spirit isn't working that way. And in the same way that the Spirit's purpose is therefore our converting and our maturing, both of those have a purpose greater still. And it's a purpose you and I don't really think about much. And it's the idea of communing. Now, that's a word uh, we use a lot. We communion twice a month, and that's all great, and it sounds so rich and deep and theological. What does it mean? It means you believe that he is Lord and that he is good and that his love is real. Brad East, in his book, he really was helpful to me when he said, look, I hope all of you would go home sometime soon and read the Song of Solomon. Wouldn't you love to have your kids caught behind the house reading Song of Solomon? Oh, wait, what? Oh, okay. Um, look, that's a, that's, a, that's a book that you go, that's in the Bible, right? I mean, it's about a husband and a wife and their love for one another that's deep and rich, and it ain't talking about patty cake, patty cake, baker's man. And the church has had a really hard time figuring out, what do we do with this book? Oh, let's not talk about it. Let's skip it. No. Mm. What's found therein is meant to help you and I understand that the Lord to us is more than just one who is a creator and we're created, more than one who is he is the rescuer and we are the rescued, more than just that God is the teacher and that we are the student, but that God is the lover and we are his beloved. Do you ever think in those terms? Do I? The richness of the connection and the affection that a husband and a wife share in that book is meant to have an analogy. Don't push the analogy so far, but get it. The desire for the Lord such that you think of him as the beloved one and your belovedness to him because of what Jesus has done for you. We have to go there, and that's why John Donne ends that famous poem, Batter My Heart, Three-Person God, saying Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me. Never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. That is not talking about patty cake, patty cake. It is something else. It is the purposes of God for us. If he is a participant in the inspiration, and he is a participant in his purposes, then what is his ultimate prompting? What is he prompting us to? Just hear what Peter says again in verse 19 of chapter 1. We've the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You think you're uniquely challenged when it comes to paying attention. Every generation gets to choose how they pay attention. Every generation struggles what to pay attention to. And every generation has to learn how to pay attention to what's worth paying attention to. Casey Sepp, she's an author, writes for The New Yorker. I think she also writes crime novels. She wrote an article a few months ago. It's in the resource doc. You should read it. It's called, What Do the Monks Tell Us About Paying Attention? What Can They Teach Us? And she wrote this towards the end of it. One uncomfortable explanation for why so many aspects of modern life corrode our attention is they do not merit it. The problem for those of us who don't live in monasteries but hope to make good use of our days is figuring out what might merit it and to move beyond the question of why the mind wanders to the more difficult, more beautiful question of where it should rest. I keep saying this, though I'm blue in the face. I know, maybe because I'm just preaching to myself. Because I understand what it means that you have hacked your brain with your smartphone when it comes to dopamine. You like the return, and so do I. And I'm hacking my brain in the force of it. And I cultivate a kind of attentiveness to other things. But Peter is saying, we have to pay attention to this as if it's a light in a dark place. how do we do that? Or what do we do that for? Because, Paul says, it is wisdom for our salvation and it is equipping for every good work. Are you afraid? Are you angry? Friends, I will tell you, maybe this isn't the only thing you do, but you shouldn't go without it, and that is to confront yourself with the promises that have been made Do you run to Psalm 23 when you need to, like I do? Do you run to a Philippians 4, 6, and 7? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you go there? You have to go there. When you can't sleep, go there. We run to it, we are prompted by it that we might find wisdom for our salvation and being equipped for every good work that's the point how do you do that one last word from brad east you saturate you meditate you pray you get in it in it as often as you can maybe just a little bit at a time prayer begets prayer reading begets reading and when you do you meditate. You think about it. You already know how to meditate because you know how to brood over things that frighten you. You know how to meditate. You just have to change the object of your meditation on what it says. And then you have to learn how to pray. Kids, well wait, before you, I say this to you, I want to show you something. It happened at the coronation yesterday. Where do you begin? Where do you begin to apply this? Yesterday, I want to show you the moment in which the prime minister of Great Britain of Hindu background, and now the Prime Minister of the whole realm, was called upon to read a text in the coronation from Colossians chapter 1, and everybody in that moment was forced to pay attention.
0: A reading from the Epistle to the Colossians. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Not everybody in that room believed that. Not everybody in the room even listened to that. But that was the word. Inspired by the Spirit, that the Spirit then uses both to explain the Lord and to persuade us of His goodness. So kids, when it comes to saturating, meditating, and praying, sometime this week, read Colossians 1, 9-17. And then here's your prayer. Ready? Father, I don't have any idea what that means. And I know even less about why it should matter. But I would ask that you would help me understand that and to know that you're good, and that you love me. There's your script, there's your prayer, you're welcome. It's where it begins. You read the Bible like you read every other book, but then you also have to read it like you read no other book. As that which the Spirit brought forth for you, so that the Spirit might bring life in you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and desires of the heart. Let's pray. Father, if we uh, come to the text with hope and expectation, I pray that you would nurture that again, and if we must begin again having drifted into attention to other things that has an appearance certainly of importance but, but which are still at the margins by comparison. Would you help us not to come and sit and wait for something to happen but simply to rest and read and hear and know that you are God and by your Spirit uh, to rest in what we cannot see or prove but that you would bless it as a consequence. In Jesus' name, by the Spirit, amen.